Welcome to Buenta Vista Socialist Club, Episode 9. I am Andrew, and I'm here with Ben McClay. G'day, cunts. Uh, very special guest, Eliza Kasia. G'day. How are you doing, Eliza? I'm, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Mm. We are missing Lucy this week due to technical difficulties surrounding Australia's terrific internet. IBS-related problems. Yes, IBS-related. IBS and NBN-related <laughs> problems. This is actually a misogynist conspiracy to keep the number of women on Bunta Vista at any one time to one, I'm pretty sure. So I just want it to be 30%. We never want a majority. 30%. Yeah. We don't want to be outvoted on uh, whatever issues might come up, I'm not sure. <laughs> like whether or not you want to take your diarrhea medicine. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. No one will force us to take our diarrhea medicine. Although someone should have forced Lucy so that she could have recorded this episode. Wow. <laughs> this is turning into a very significant running gag. Look, uh, you know what? Someone specifically complained that there were not enough poop jokes, so here we are. That's true. Boonta Vista true. delivers. That's right. Uh, James, James Turnbull, former CTO of Kickstarter, complains that there is not enough uh, scatological content on the show. Mm. I agree. So we're really going to have to try and ramp it up. So, I was very excited to have Eliza on the show. I am a big fan of her work, of her illustrations and art and comics and all of the things that you do. Thank you. Um, so, one of the main things that you've got going at the moment is, is a book version of your problem glyphs. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know if you wanted to just kind of run people through what that's all about. Woo. Well, uh, you know, I've been doing this for four years and I still do not have a good elevator pitch. Um, problem glyphs, it, it is... People send me their problems, um, and uh, it is anonymous, and I take those problems and I turn them into a, uh, a sigil that I hope will be of some help or comfort to them. It's sort of like an advice column, uh, only instead of actually taking the, you know, space to write out paragraphs of advice, um, I return to them a sort of a psychotherapeutic glyph. And they can make of that what they will. Um, so it's that's been going on for about four years, as I said, uh, four years in November. There are almost 300 glyphs now. And we have put 100 of them into uh, the Problem Glyphs book, first collection. And it's very large. It is a large book. <laughs> mm. we, we were not expecting it to be so big. Um, uh, hardbound, and we kickstarted it last year, and we finally we we got our books back from the printer, and we're in the process of of shipping them out to uh, to Kickstarter backers and pre-orders right now. So yeah, that's Fantastic. that's all going very well. Very cool. Well, um, we'll link to all of this stuff in the episode description and all over the internet. So if people want to check it out, they can check it out and get into it. Thank you. So. What we wanted to have you on to talk about today was, or one of the many topics that we wanted to cover, was kind of about um, how Australia and America's cultures, um, both through you know sort of the core of their culture and their media culture and a lot of different a lot of different areas, have sort of very separate origins, but a lot of weird parallels as well. Yep, they're both countries that are only a couple of hundred years old mm -hmm. compared to a lot of other thousands of year old civilizations so you know very very kind of fresh conflicted cultural identities a lot of the time absolutely yeah particularly around i suppose that they they both really kind of were were forged in uh weird frontier wilderness yes kind of vibes yes americans have have a relationship to the desert uh that is i think similar to the relationship that um Australians have to the desert. And when I say Australian or American in, in, in this context, I mean specifically white descendants of colonists, um, mm. because our, our indigenous people, uh, respectively, of course, have completely different relationships to the lands that we are now infesting. Um, you know, I and I also want to just make a disclaimer that I know very little about Australian history except just sort of what I've managed to glean on my own. So I will probably say a bunch of stuff that's just total bullshit. Uh <laughs> and completely by accident. So I'll just I'll just do my best to to stick to stuff that I actually know, which isn't a lot. 
But um, in terms of aesthetics, there are so many interesting parallels. Uh, and, and the desert keeps coming up because some of our most uh, Americans, some of our most iconic films and media is cowboy stuff, uh, which is almost without exception set in, in dry, hot, dusty, sandy wildernesses mm. um which are also spectacular and there there's a lot of similarities there like um you know the grand canyon the zion national monument and a lot of our national parks um look like the bizarro version of of australian landscapes and settings um mm. and <clears throat> i think that the big difference between the the australian relationship to that that hostile desert environment and and the american relationship to the american west is that we had manifest destiny and you guys didn't and mm. that really made all the difference in the national character because there is not that australian colonists don't have a sense of entitlement but i think that the sense of entitlement that americans have towards american land is is different and what i saw a lot in in the films um that i've seen from the australian canon and and specifically the ones that i reviewed most recently is a sense that the wilderness is alien and it is treated as alien it is treated as like a twilight zone episode whereas uh, american media about the desert things are strange but not to me it didn't feel like it was strange in in quite the same way here's a weird um example of that kind of thing i was just thinking that um that in australian media and films it seems like there is a lot of what's the best way to put this uh like you were saying it's kind of an alien landscape there is there are a lot of real life instances of people who are out for a bushwalk and they wander a bit in the wrong direction and suddenly they are just lost and going to die it really doesn't take a lot to to accidentally get yourself marooned who was the who was that bloody um the one of the explorers who he was out near lake air i think and just disappeared him and like 70 people one of our like early explorers, but he had that happen like twice that he went out there and he lost everyone that was in his party. And then, really, yeah. And then the second time he also disappeared. So there you go. There's there's some Twilight Zone stuff for you. That's amazing. But, um, but yeah, I, I would I would say what I find interesting in the parallel is that in a lot of American media, and the weird example that springs to mind is the is the Billy Crystal film City Slickers. Ah, yes. <laughs> Where you know they're they're soft they're soft city boys and they go out for um you know this this I guess it's meant to be kind of a, a fun activity where you go out and help help wrangle cattle help do a cattle drive mm -hmm. but but the sort of arc of that movie which is reflected in a bunch of other movies is about people from sort of metropolitan areas mm -hmm. going out into the country and being very unnerved or you know, feeling really weird about it at first, but then coming to understand yes. what's what's good about being out there, being out in the wild, being out in the wilderness and all that sort of thing. Whereas I kind of don't feel like I've seen many things that are equivalent to that in Australian movies where no. somebody goes out and then they come to love it. They come to sort of go, ah, I see what's so great about living on the land and living off right. your wits. And yeah, that's actually an incredibly good observation. Um, I like that a lot. And I agree with you. I, you know, all of the the stuff that I've seen. Uh, let's see, Razorback is my all time favorite Australian movie. It's so good, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Razorback is so good. It's for so anybody who doesn't know. <laughs> Razorback is amazing. I I originally saw it because I was watching an American documentary about the influence of Australian film, but specifically Australian horror and exploitation on American filmmakers. And so the majority of our like most considered to be the most gonzo filmmakers are strongly influenced by Australian work. I think because of that sense of alienation and that sense of just bizarro uh, settings and stuff. And so somebody mentioned Razorback. It might have been Quentin Tarantino, actually. Um, and I was like, and he, you know, he goes on to describe that they, they they built a giant mechanical pig, and like it's it's by the uh, the guy who directed Highlander. Um, shit, why can't I remember? Mulcahy. No, oh. yes, 
Russell? R- Russell? Russell Mulcahy. Russell yep. Mulcahy, yeah. Uh, and then I found out later that the cinematographer, and the cinematography is my favorite thing about that movie, is David Semler, who also did, um, he did Road Warrior and Thunderdome. Oh. And, yeah. And that, both of those films have some amazing cinematography. Yes. Uh, Road Warrior in particular, I just I just rewatched both of those. I don't know if Semler had anything to do with Fury Road or not. I actually didn't get around to rewatching that. But but yeah, I mean, the the shots are incredible and there is really there is this strong utilization of those settings uh because razorback is mostly filmed outside um and there's this just weird like tripping scene in the desert oh that that dream sequence is yeah that's the ur text for like whenever you see movies or tv parodying dream sequences it's almost (laughs) invariably that but like no one's Mm -hmm. fucking seen razorback it's so weird to me that that's a thing like it is one of these movies that's just immensely influential. It, it, the shots from Razorback look like Team Fortress 2 maps. <laughs> and, there, and there's absolutely no way that the Team Fortress 2 development team was not watching Razorback on repeat. Because that I <laughs> I was I was an intern at a concept art studio for video games, and that is what they did. They had a big TV uh in the middle of their sort of group work area and everybody's computers and tablets were there and they would just be watching stuff all the time that related to whatever it was that they were working on god that sounds so Um, good it's the dream it was all right um (laughs) i i found out a lot of things about why games are so bad (laughs) (laughs) and uh it's not the artist's fault surprise um but like i think somebody on twitter told me that one of the one of the main TF2 developers, is it Pinkerton? Is that his name? Jesse something? I, I can't remember. I should have looked it up before I got on, on the podcast. But um, the entirety of Team Fortress 2 is set in Australia. And it is it is one of the most thorough American media deconstructions of Australian tropes. Uh, American mm. tropes of Australia, I should say. Um, because it's just exhaustive. That's crazy. I had no idea about that. I just knew that the sniper's Australian, right? He's he he's the only expressly Australian character. But Manco, which is the company uh, that all of these mercenaries work for mm. uh, in 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 the game canon, is Australian, and it's run by uh, a it's run by a guy named Saxton Hale, who is the largest <laughs> Australian on earth, and <laughs> he wears a crocodile Dundee style bush hat and extremely small cut-off jorts. And his his chest hair is in the shape of Australia. <laughs> oh. God bless. It's so good. I would like to take a moment to um, mention one of my favorite Australian characters in a recent film, um, which, which is not set in Australia, which was in, in Chappie, in the film Chappie. Uh, Hugh Jackman plays such an amazing Australian character. Does he? Uh, it's it. They managed to capture just this wonderful little nuance of the Australian sensibility, oh. which is pretending you're like joking, but just being a cunt. Like <laughs> his character just says so many moments where he's like riling up one of the other characters and be like, "Nah, mate, I'm just having a laugh. Don't worry about it." Right. But in a real yep. sinister way. But he is not having a laugh. He's not having a laugh. Americans are they're not great at that, and I think that that I think that that's a that's a British thing that translated to australia in a way that it did not translate to america so well i don't know why puritans i think probably Mm. well on a on a purely aesthetic level as well his character is fantastic he has like kind of a small mullet (laughs) tasteful business mullet yeah tasteful (laughs) business mullet um and he's wearing an extremely australian uniform that is very close to my heart of like a a short-sleeved khaki shirt um like hard yakka work shorts which are and this is what made me think of that was the very small shorts Mm. very small shorts um very small shorts for the express purpose of doing work is an extremely australian thing yes and it shows up in jurassic park as well uh muldoon oh muldoon he's amazing right i love him i know i'm I'm always doing muldoon lines and nobody knows what the fuck i'm talking about because nobody remembers that character um except that he says clever girl and that's that's all mm. they remember about him but you know i'm always i'm always like walking into places and be like they should all be destroyed you know and nobody knows <laughs> what the, the fuck i'm talking about <laughs> it's such a wonderfully dramatic entrance it's so beautiful he just comes it's out of lovely. nowhere he could have said hello 
But no. Good day. <laughs> they no. should all be destroyed. <laughs> they should all be destroyed. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. I love it. And there's, I, you know, I say no, that. There's no, I have some concerns. No. No. <laughs> he's, he's a hard bitten Bushman and that's, it's just wonderful. Mm. It's very good. Well, Hugh Jackman's shorts and work boots in that in that film are an absolute treasure, and I would encourage you, if you are not aware of an Australian sporting personality, uh, to look him up called Warwick Capper. <laughs> the fucking names. War Warwick Capper was a um, or I, you know, he was still alive. As far <laughs> he as is. I know. He's still kicking. Um, he's still kicking. Um, he was an Australian football league, the Aussie Rules. Um, football player. He had a big, beautiful, flowing mullet um, and was expressly known for how tiny and constricting his shorts were. <laughs> that was like, that was his thing that he was known for. Was, um, I, I want to say, was he, was he like 70s, 80s kind of player? I'm, I'm not actually sure. Uh, I mostly just know him from now in how he's still trying to kind of keep that as his brand. Uh, well, y you and you and me are both kind of from the from the states that don't have a great investment in Aussie rules football no. as well. Okay, what um, what is Aussie rules football? Is it soccer or is it like American football or like is it is like neither? It is like neither of those things. Okay, um, it is it is played on an enormous field. Um, too big. I I honestly I would don't. say yep. it's a ridiculous too, shape. Too big, oval shaped and oval. Okay. Mm. Yep, there's there's like four goalposts at both ends, and if you kick the ball through the the center ones, you get more points than the ones on the outside. Huh. Uh, and to illustrate my knowledge, I do not know how many points you receive for either, or how many <laughs> players there are on a side. I think there's about a hundred players per side. Uh, yes. Yes. Much like getting the snitch in Quidditch, I think if you get through the middle posts, the game is over, and you win 130 <laughs> points or something. Yes. So, so for your for your context and by comparison, Eliza, um, everybody on every team is insanely fit um, and a crazy physical specimen, and the game takes place with everybody just constantly in motion. Yeah. Um, running and scrambling over this ball and kicking and passing it to each other. Generally, they reckon that um. In an average game of AFL, a guy will run the equivalent of a marathon. Huh. So you know that, but you don't know how many points are scored. No. <laughs> um, okay. Also, also, like, guys can kick, like, half, three quarters of the length of this enormous field. To the point where, you know how in um, American football they have, like, special teams and they have people where it's their, it's their role to just be the kicker. Yeah. For the team. Um, so yeah, they had a guy who they got for, um, an American team because they went, oh my God, this guy can kick a football, like the length of a gridiron field. And he was just a regular AFL dude. Uh -huh. So, <laughs> so they got him and said, Hey, we'll pay you like 15 times as much money and you don't need to do the marathon part. You just got to come out and kick a couple of times a game. And, uh, he thought that was okay. And huh. he probably get paid a lot more, I would assume. Hmm. I don't know what the salary cap situation is like in AFL, but uh, oof. Hmm. other Australian sports not good. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say there is way more money in American football. Mm. It is quite the industry. That seems safe. Uh, probably. Um, I mean, jocks are my greatest enemies, so I I actually mm. <laughs> I I'm sort of like opposed to organized sports on a a spiritual level. Um, <laughs> yes. As am I. Unbelievable. Um, so I often clash with my wife, who is a jock. Oh, um, see. Is she? Yes. Uh, well, I've informed that I am a geek and she is a jock. <laughs> she does not respect my kind. I'm a jock. I think that's pretty obvious. Oh, Very clearly. Clear from looking yeah. at me mm. and listening to my voice. Yep. Deeply <laughs> a jock. No, absolutely. Yes. You know, the only time I've ever cared about baseball was Ken Burns baseball, which kicks ass. And I mean the documentary and um, uh, DS Nine. <laughs> I, I will watch every episode, every baseball episode of Deep Space Nine, uh, happily. But I will never go to a baseball game ever. Sounds fair. I hear it is America's boring national pastime. Are we love to stand still on a field, and mm. and and we call soccer boring, and it's like, 
really because our our athletes just stand they just they just stand around and some some just stuff waiting. happens and yeah i played a lot of baseball as a kid like team baseball uh and i was fucking shit at it i was so shit at it so i was just always in the outfield it's like standing there doing fucking nothing because we were all like under 14s so no one could hit that far anyway <laughs> just be like staring into space daydreaming about a future where i wasn't constantly beat up uh, yeah, that, I guess that's that sounds like a shared uh, experience between Americans and Australians is being forced to play sports that you are bad at mm-hmm. um, and that are a huge waste of your time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, allow us to return to our topic for a no. moment, which is some parallel. <laughs> ben. Ben. I'm sorry. I've got my sassy pants on today. This, this jock is out of control. <laughs> So let us return to our topic for a second about how uh, just those kind of those those dueling parallels of the whole American cowboy mm-hmm. versus like the Australian bush ranger archetype. Yes. Because there's a few other films which I'm very interested to know if you have ever seen or heard about. Okay. For example, there was the 1970s adaptation of the story of Ned Kelly starring Mick Jagger from the Rolling Stones. Oh, my God. Okay, wait, who is- remind me who Ned Kelly is? So, Ned Kelly was a famous criminal. Good. Oh, there you go. So, they they did do a version of that much later, a few years before Heath Ledger's death, starring Heath Ledger as Ned Kelly. Oh, oh. With the the Edgertons and every other Australian in it. I think you'll find they also did a version of it uh, in the 90s, I believe, starring uh, a man known as Yahoo Serious. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, um, Re- Reckless Kelly, that one was called, um, which which uh, carried on from his, his star-making turn as an alternative history Australian version of Albert Einstein uh, in Young Einstein. Quality film. Uh, it's an immensely silly film. So, so yeah, there was the 2003 Ned Kelly, uh, which was directed by Gregor Jordan. Oh, he did Two Hands, which is an Australian classic. That is a great film. Um, but yes, that one had Heath Ledger and Orlando Bloom, Jeffrey Rush, Naomi Watts, Joel Edgerton, every Australian you can think of. Mm. Uh, very, very bleak and grimy and looked a lot more like what um, what colonization probably actually smelled like, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the 1970 Ned Kelly uh, starring Mick Jagger. So for some reason, they felt the need to do that. So Ned Kelly was a famous, um, famous bush ranger, which is you know our term for for outlaws. And he, I don't know, I guess he's seen as a bit of a Robin Hood type figure oh. in um, in in Australian history. So uh, him and his brothers were criminals or didn't like getting taxed or whatever. So they started knocking over stagecoaches and that kind of thing. And where where it becomes Australian imagery is when at some point he went and had made or made himself a a big iron helmet um, with a letterbox type thing in the front. Wow! So he he basically he basically got together some extremely extremely uh, proto body armor. It's basically Australia's RoboCop. Yeah. Yes, I can see that. Mm. That's fantastic. I, I can't think of any uh, like comparable character in in the American West. He also was an absolute dandy. If you've ever seen him with the helmet off, um, he is beautiful, beautiful um, quiff. You saying Ned Kelly was hot? And... Is that what this is? <laughs> yes, yes, I'm absolutely saying that. Well, I'm going to verify this. I have been sent you... a picture of Ned Kelly. Yeah, he looks like. <laughs> He looks like he's from a, a GQ article on ways to style your hair like a douchebag when you have a huge beard. He he looks like he currently lives in inner city Melbourne. Uh, so yes, he he had an enormous kind of steel steel helmet. It was a whole thing, and they would go around and rob people. So that that I think really speaks to the the Australian cultural ideal of you know rebellion against authority and yeah, we fucking hate cops. Larrikinism, <laughs> disliking cops, uh, disliking them. the government. America kind of loves cops. Like, mm. most, you know, a lot of a lot of the most famous cowboys that we have were cops. 
like uh, Pat Garrett, mm. who, who killed Billy the Kid. He he was he's actually one of my ancestors. Uh, Garrett Garrett is a family name on my mom's side. But yeah, no, he was he was a cop. We've got you know because the, the the prototypical cowboy for us, there's like the lone wanderer type. But even those dudes tend to be sheriffs and they tend to be marshals. Um, so there is this, I think, uh, association with and uh, commitment to law enforcement and and that kind of governance um, that I don't see so much in in Australian media. Like if there's a cop, he's not, you know, he he won't be particularly well represented. Usually not like a good guy or particularly helpful. He'll just kind of be there, you know. He's kind of like part of the part of the scenery. That's very much what cops are actually like in Australia. Um, <laughs> just kind of part of the scenery. Um, I love to call the police when my car has been broken into or something like that and have them say, oh, it sucks, man. Mm, yeah. When I, and that's just kind of the end of the conversation. When I had my apartment yeah. broken into, they were like, uh, we could probably dust some stuff for fingerprints, but it's not going to do anything. And I was like, well, I'm glad that yep. I called actually i was glad that i called them because i uh i used it as an excuse to take the day off work ah no that's good oh, I gotta, that's pretty good gotta bloody wait for the cops to come around so i won't be able to come in for <laughs> nine hours probably the the biggest difference i can i can think of there is that the police are significantly more likely to kill you uh if you call mm. them for to report a robbery or a break-in or you know a car thing yeah they here in in the united states they show up and they shoot your dog is the first mm -hmm. thing that they do mm. and then they shoot you a lot of the time so mm. it's better to just not not bother them just let them get on not involve them if you don't no. really need to there's um, they can't there's that's a pretty big difference uh with us is that's do feel a lot less likely to be murdered by a cop and also um yeah yeah just uh the whole cop valor thing is it, there is really no no parallel here i mean mm. uh, you will certainly hear from people that you know well you know cops are out there putting their life on the line for you so you should be nice to them but it's very different to post 9-11 yes uh, yeah. valorization of of every form of emergency services mm -hmm. in in the states cops are grubs in Australia, and we hate mm. grubs. Ah, uh, yeah. You yep. know, I was actually th my my second favorite piece of Australian media is about cops. Um, it's it's called the Strange Calls, and it's by um he's doing he's doing Thor stuff now. Uh, Daily Fearson, I want to say. I should have looked this up. Anyway, I love the Strange Calls. It landed on Netflix last year sometime. I had never heard of it before. Um, and it turns out it's it's like how could I even describe it? It is sort of the Australian... Oh, what? It's being described here as Hot Fuzz meets Haven, Aussie style. I would call oh. it Hot Fuzz meets the X-Files, but it, it, yeah, it is It is that. It's phenomenal. It like I, I recommend it to people all the time. It's so funny. Um... And it is, I mean, it it is it is about bumbling police departments uh, mm. in, in this tiny little surf town. Um, called Coolum, which apparently is a real place, uh, <laughs> which surprised me. Wait, hang on, that's weird. Set in a fictional Australian seaside community called Coolum, there is an Australian seaside community called Coolum, an hour and a half north of Ooh. where I am. They apparently filmed a lot of stuff there. Yeah, they uh, they there's in in the credits, it's like special thanks to the city of Coolum and you know the municipality of this, that, and the other thing, and we filmed a bunch of stuff there. So I guess it's just make-believe Coolum? I, I don't know. Mount Coolum is on the poster, so I guess that is the Coolum. Weird. Yeah, Scott, yeah. It's great. I, I love it. It's funny. The music is incredible. The concepts are super good. There are only like six or seven episodes, and I don't know if they're ever going to do another season, because um, the, the director is now busy with much higher budget stuff, but... Hmm. I, I just adore it, and it's probably the most recent piece of Australian media that um that I've 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 seen because I haven't seen I haven't seen uh some of the other stuff you mentioned yet. There were a lot of movies to get through. Um, mm. They just keep making them. That's they the do. I, well, you guys have a I think you have a national film endowment of some kind. 
Um, uh, we do, although I imagine that's the kind of thing that just keeps decreasing. There's been a lot of um, a lot of austerity government stuff going on yeah. over the last however long. Just just cutting funding to anything that involves uh, art or culture or mm. poverty or domestic violence or you know anything that you would like to actually help people out with. Yeah, I think that's probably why the majority of the Australian canon comes from the seventies. Like almost mm. all of the stuff that I saw was between. 71 and 85 pretty much um mm. well i i highly recommend checking out um two hands okay which, which is uh it has a, a young heath ledger in one of his first first big roles and rose Byrne, um nice. along with along with australian treasure brian brown <laughs> oh god i love him who you you may remember from the tom cruise film cocktail if you've seen that i have not Oh, that's also a good one. So yes, I, I definitely recommend that one. It's it's a very sort of distinct crime crime story, noirish kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, very stylized, lots of very Australian sort of identity stuff in it. Same mm-hmm. with Chopper, you know. Um, would recommend Chopper if you haven't caught that one. No, Star I haven't. making turn, star making turn from Eric Bana. Oh really, Is that Eric Bana? Mm. Sorry, Eric Bana. Unbelievable. Sorry. Sorry. Eric Banner. Thank you. Who I feel a lot of Americans do not realize um, was in Australia known for like sketch comedy Mm. before he became an international film star. Most of the Australian and there's like that big there's a big Australian Hollywood contingent. Most of them ditch their accents as soon as possible. So we basically have no idea who like if anyone is Australian and if if you find out about it it's like oh so and so is Australian hmm that's interesting and that's it that's like that's where it ends well just... it should have been clear to anybody who saw Eric Banner in um in Black Hawk Down where he was doing like some kind of Texan accent and it's wow it's not good it is not good <laughs> um it's very it was, he was doing a very southern drawl and it's not working out for him in that film I did find out that they had to do two versions of Crocodile Dundee because uh, the Australian version was completely uninterpretable to international audiences. Mm. So they yeah, had they had to remove a lot of the Australian slang and like dub some of the actors. <laughs> well, there's there's a very there's a very iconic Australian film from the '90s called The Castle, uh, which is about a uh, like a working class Australian family. Who have their um, who have their homes seized by the government so that they can bulldoze it and make way for like a new airport runway or something like that? Yes. Um, or a freeway or whatever, you know, a bit of eminent domain kind of stuff. And they they fight the um, the case. The father uh, fights the case, you know, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and it's it's almost kind of at a an Australian parallel to the. American dream kind of thing, you mm-hmm. know, of um, a, a man's a man's home is his castle. Right, is the is the overarching theme of the film, um, which also has Eric Banner in it in a very funny role. Um, but there's a scene in that which is very memorable to Australian audiences, where Eric Banner's character comes in and says that he needs to get one of the cars out of the driveway, and there are, so there's a bunch of cars parked behind each other. And they're all extremely Australian models of car. Yes. You the car culture in Australia is something I wanted to talk about because we don't I we don't have the same thing here. And it seems yeah. like we should, but we don't for some reason. Well, uh, like well, the the reason the reason it's funny in the film is that he says, you know, Oh, I need you to move the Tirana so I can get to the Commodore and you know, it's this sequence of cars that needs to be moved, and they all have very Australian names. And American audiences had no idea uh, what was happening during this scene. Right. So they re- they redubbed it, um, saying, "Oh, I I need you to move the Camaro so I can get to the Buick, so Good I can." God. Yeah, yeah. Except it just completely stops making sense as yeah, a joke that's... when you don't use like the the. The Australian car names that sound so hilarious, like Tarana, uh-huh. which is like, yeah, and it just it just suddenly completely stops making sense once you redub it to something mm. else. 
uh, asking why you would even leave it in the film at that point. I mean, I have seen, I've seen all the Mad Maxes at this point, um, and I had seen them long ago when I was a kid, but I still didn't, I, I thought that the car thing was a Mad Max thing. I did not understand that the car thing was an Australian thing until mm. I saw this really terrible reality show, also on Netflix, called Keeping Up with the Joneses, which is about an absolutely enormous uh, cattle ranch, I want to say, in the Northern Territory. Um, it's like 13 million acres or something. And the Jones family, who owns and runs this place, uh, it's so big that they can't drive cattle with anything except a helicopter. So they are this giant, there's this big ranching family with an enormous amount of land, um, all of it very picturesque. But they run it with small personal helicopters. And I love this subject matter so much. I really wish that it had a more serious, uh, some, I, I want the Werner Herzog, uh, keeping up with the Joneses because it's, it's so, it's so cool. But the, the reality TV show packaging just absolutely mm. ruins it and, and makes, mm. makes the most stunning shit, uh, completely mundane. But, Everybody on the ranch has this fucked up car with like shit welded to it and the bumpers falling off and they're like terracing through the the red dirt, you know, and like outrunning crocodiles and shit. And I was like, oh, okay, so the car thing, Mad Max is from the car thing, not the other way around. And that was that was the first time I really put that together. I like well, there's a term for that. What that's the car culture? Uh, no, well, the the specific thing you're describing, I believe, is known as a paddy basher. Paddy basher. Huh. As in a paddock. That makes sense. Or a, a bush basher, depending on where you are in the country. Oh, uh, yep, yep. So, um, and that is, yes, that is your shitty farm car for tearing through, you know, unpaved areas and not caring about the suspension or yeah, right. putting dents in it and all that. Yeah. Stuff. Once the car's gone past the point of being able to get a roadworthy certificate, uh, it you just start fanging it around. It comes a paddy basher. Yeah. yeah, great tradition. That does exist in rural America, and actually, we have. I, I was wondering if Australia has these too. It would be kind of nuts to me if they didn't. But um, we have a thing called demolition derby, mm. where oh, yeah, but... you have those. Okay, that yeah, that makes sense. Um, but it's it's still, I don't know. There is just something like a little bit different about it. I think maybe there's some nuance to the Australian like hoon culture that mad max mm -hmm, mm -hmm. captures very well like uh it in mad max one the like visceral excitement he has when they're trying to lure him to stay with the force with like the v8 and you know they're talking yeah. about like mm -hmm. oh we're gonna be able to super up mate and he's like that like getting real passionate about what is generally like a shitbox car that's a mm -hmm. That's a great part of the Australian sensibility. That was like my dad's whole childhood was yeah. like <laughs> just hotting up these ridiculous shitty cars that were like H.J. Holden's and Tiranas. And... and and that's another aspect of it is that while there is obviously a, a really strong and developed uh, culture in America around like hot rod kind yes. of culture and fancy yeah, cars, doing up, doing mm. up vintage cars, all that yep. kind of thing. Um, there's a kind of similar parallel in Australian culture to where, so Australia for a very long time had a, had a local car manufacturing industry, um, which is interesting because people, people really saw that as being very, very uniquely Australian, despite the fact that two companies that were sort of, you know, dueling for supremacy in the Australian identity of, of like the car manufacturing company were, uh, Ford, which uh -huh. you may have heard of, <laughs> um, and Holden, which is an offshoot of GMC. Ah, uh. so so Holden kind of had like Australia specific branding, but yeah. Ford did not. But both of them made um, Australia local models of cars. So the cars, like in Mad Max, the Interceptor, um, that is an Australian car. That's an Australian like. Ford Falcon 500 ah, or GT or whatever it is. Interesting. That's just been souped up a bunch. But um, that car in itself is is like a car that you will see around the place, that model of car. Yeah. Uh, same for, like Ben was saying, you know, things like 
H.J. Holdens and Commodores and Tiranas and all those sorts of things are cars that will only be found in Australia. Yeah. And each of those models of car will have a passionate community of people who own, um, you know, ones from the from the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, uh-huh. who have put hideous amounts of money into, into doing them up, making them insanely overpowered. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have, like, a, you know, a whole kind of culture around um, car festivals, around that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, obviously there's there's a whole, like, magazine industry around check out this this crazy, you know, v- V8 supercharged Commodore with yes. massive blowers on the bonnet and all that kind of stuff. So, in the town that I grew up in, there is a national car festival called Summonats. Oh, mate, taking the Commodore to Summonats, that's a... Uh... Taking the fucking <laughs> Commodore to Summonats. Um, I used to live in an apartment directly across the street from... The showground where they have uh, oh summonats, and so yeah, summonats is basically a thing where like a, a a several days long car show festival kind of thing where people all bring their cars and they all look at each other's cars and they have like burnout competitions mm. and all that kind of stuff, uh, which of course makes me think of one of my one of my favourite incredibly specific slices of Australian culture. Uh, for a while, on a public access channel, I don't know if it still exists, there was a TV show called Bloke's World. <laughs> ben, do you remember Bloke's I World? I do remember Bloke's World. Yes. Um, which is these two two bogan guys who would get about looking at hotted up cars and, you know, guys riding dirt bikes. And um, <laughs> they had a long running bit where they were trying to get a, uh, a synchronized pole dancing team in wow. the Olympics. That was great stuff. Uh, so, by and large, pretty pretty lowest common denominator stuff. But they did have one segment that is near and dear to my heart, which was at those kinds of car festivals, like summon ads, um, they would run up to the driver's side window of a guy who was about to do, like, a massive burnout in front of a crowd. They'd go, who do you want to dedicate this burnout to? <laughs> and put the microphone in his face. <laughs> And um, and he'd go. This one's going out to me, old lady Sheila. Love you. And then he'd throw a massive burnout in this car as they superimposed a big pink love heart around the outside of the frame. That's incredible. And the caption would come up: "Burnout love dedications." That's amazing. Which I absolutely, I would watch an entire TV show that was just burnout love dedications. That might be one of our uh, premium things. You know, once we're yeah. once the Patreon's going better, we'll start that. Oh. Just loved it. I, I want a service that like brings me public access shit from around the world. Just mm. put it on my TV. I'll watch it forever. I mean, it's it's weird thinking about it. it's like why is there not an American Mad Max? Um, you know, because it's Mad Max is actually kind of the Australian Star Wars. Like Thunderdome is very Jedi, and there's 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 so much. Like actually, I mean, Brian May does the score for road warrior and he's it's clearly just brian may doing john williams um a lot of the shots are very tatooine um the you know the the good colonists are wearing that sort of luke skywalker tatooine outfit with the you know the crossed all the the white stuff samurai hessian sex right but instead of it being on an alien world and this is what i was talking about it's in the fucking outback. It's just mm. it's just there. Um but you would think with the American obsession with cars and the American car industry and I mean we have we have a car culture. It's not the same as it was in the 50s and 60s, but it's there. It's like why don't we have that? Why don't we have that sort of Mad Max relationship to to our vehicles? Well, I, th- and I don't know what the answer is. I think is. it's because that relationship to cars manifests in the Fast and Furious movies, where the cars are oh. the best of the best, <laughs> driven by the best of the best, whereas the Australian sensibility is the cars are kind of shitty and they're driven by idiots. They're shitty. Which is like, yeah, our cars are shitty and they are driven by idiots. Us. That's way better to me because I was and am an idiot and <laughs> I love shitty cars. And I grew up with shitty cars. Like, when I was, you know, 15 and got my learner's permit and I I didn't live in a real city. We didn't have any infrastructure or 
public transportation. So all teenagers get cars, which is a terrible idea, but there's literally no other way to get to school and to work. So my parents, who had uh, a 71 and 72, respectively, um, Ford Fiesta and Toyota Corolla station wagon, those were my first two cars. And when when one fucked off, I just moved on to the next one. And both of those cars, they were shit boxes. They were full of rust. You could, like, your parts were constantly falling off them. And you just, like, rip them off and throw them on the side of the road and keep driving because there's no point. I painted them all, you know, I put like a big fucking skull and crossbones on the hood. Nice. You know, we we did all the interiors and everything. And so I, that was like, I loved that shit. And no one else I I knew was doing that to their cars, even though most of us had, you know, shitty or semi-shitty cars. I think I was the only one with like steel-bodied monsters from the, from the seventies. So... I, I really sort of glommed on to that, that Australian concept of you have this shitty car that you love and which you use all the time and you're constantly like taking pieces off of it and welding other pieces back on and painting it. And that made sense to me. Like that is, that's how I relate to, to my vehicles. Mm. Um, mm. And I don't think, I don't think most Americans have that, you know? Well, even, even in the wider sense, I'm struggling to think of like, I kind of can think of, examples in cinema and in culture of kind of a similar thing where with stuff like Mad Max, obviously it's, it's sort of an extrapolation of elements of our culture, like the car stuff and like the outback and, and lawlessness and all that kind of thing. But it all comes in, comes together in that kind of package that you're talking about that says something sort of unique about our identity, which in turn, you know, really, obviously really cemented itself into a lot of people's brains Mm -hmm. but i can't i really struggle to think of american equivalents to that sort of thing i mean i tell you what the only example that i can think of that's truly successful is um is the is the steampunk film wild wild west starring will smith (laughs) thank you Yes, Wild Wild West, first of all, if it had come out, you know, 10 years later, it would have been a smash hit. Um, it is a terrible fucking movie, mm, mm-hmm. uh, mm. but I will I, I will defend that film. I, I will defend many things about that horrible movie. Um, you know what my, it my is? Point. <laughs> yeah. what, you're, what you're bringing up, I think, is, is, is cogent because the Back to the Future 3 had that same thing. And that, mm. that steampunk uh, genre, which cannot be separated widely enough from what dorks on Mashable are calling <laughs> steampunk these days. Yep. And believe me, I know from steampunk. Um, it, it is. It is essentially American. And it is, it's kind of what Victorianism turned into once you exported it to the American West and you put a fucking coal engine on it. And mm. that's that's just delightful. Like that. And Back to the Future is a really good example because it centers around that car. And the car is sort of, it, it's a friend and it's a character, but it's also sort of a fetish object. Um, it's a plot device, literally. And and there's also that that thing, is it in two or three, where he upgrades the flux capacitor so that it just, it runs on garbage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> which, second one, yeah. Yeah, which I love. Um, and so, the you know, as a result, the DeLorean has become like, one of the only widely recognized cars in you know american culture like we we have a few oh that's a that's a volkswagen beetle or whatever but the delorean is is something else i think that's that is i think it's the closest well, thing particularly out of 80s culture because yeah. um cuz you could probably find you know plenty of plenty of examples of going further back things like you know the ford thunderbird and yeah um, a, a lot of things related to to anything from kind of like hot rod and surf culture. Oh, you're talking like where uh, they are, where Stallone's hideous hot rod from Cobra. Oh, it's a great. <laughs> it's hot the rod. worst Come looking on. car in the um, history of mad cars. There's also there's well, also my... Bullet, uh, the the oh, San Francisco. Yep. That's, that's that's very a beautiful car. Yeah, beautiful cars in that. Is and that a and a, Ford um, GT that he's driving in Bullet. Yeah. I want to say well, yes. My my point being, though, that I think you could find instances of cars that are in and of themselves iconic models and makes of cars. 
you could probably think of a few things like the um the the Harley Davidsons from like Easy Rider. Easy Rider, extremely I was say, yeah. iconic vehicles. Um, but then kind of up to the point of the 80s, some of the only things that kind of stand out to my mind as being like iconic specific vehicles, like the DeLorean from Back to the Future, which mm -hmm. people solely associate with that series of films. Right. Nobody says, hey, it's that car I already knew about. Right. Um, and then maybe like, no, I can only think of stuff like, um, like the, the Porsche in um, Risky Business. Yeah. Um, which is well, while while being a German car, is is very kind of instrumental to the plot of the film. It's the driver of the whole plot of the film. Similar, but beyond that, similar in Ferris Bueller, there is mm, that whole thing with the with the dad's car. Mm. Um, but yeah. in in both of those cases, they're both they're both just unmodified, commercially available cars. Right. Whereas the the the, the DeLorean. Um, is like like the vehicles in Mad Max. Yes. It's an existing car that's been modified and and becomes a character of its own. Right. Um, but to come back to my, my point about the kind of steampunkish stuff, is that I can think of examples through American cinema where people have taken, um, you know, the kind of the imagery and the aesthetic of of the of the old West, which is, you know, obviously hugely um, definitive in American culture and then tried to kind of meld it with some other aspects of culture, whether they be kind of upgraded technology or... You're talking cowboys versus aliens. Yes, that's <laughs> great, great stuff like that. Um, but yeah, like none, even if some of them were moderately successful, none of them, <laughs> to my mind, have been, you know, really sort of definitive... Um, images of, of a kind of that co-opted aesthetic in the same way that Mad Max is, where yeah. there's several several elements of our culture and aesthetic combined to make essentially, you know, a sort of definitive genre of sci-fi that's specific to Australia. Mm, yes. Yes. And I mean, I, I actually, I looked this up, uh, that horrible post-apocalyptic movie, A Boy and His Dog. Oh, God. That movie is <laughs> that not good. <laughs> It's awful. I, that I think that predates Mad Max, um, if I remember my Wikipedia correctly. Mm. Uh, so I think Mad Max drew a lot from that. Uh, it's in, it was interesting watching all of the Mad Maxes again, having seen Fury Road more recently, because he, George Miller he, he clearly he took all of the ideas that you know he tried you know once or twice. In, in, in the first two and, and perfected it in Fury Road. Mm. And it's I think it's so rare to see a creator really doing successful iterations in that way. Mm. Yeah, um, that's that's the thing that really stands out to me about the Mad Max series as well, is that not not just does each movie stand on its own merits, but that each of them is a is a successful um a, a successful expansion of the world. Yes. that he began in the first film mm -hmm. without needing to, you know, retread everything that's happened in previous films. Um, you know, obviously he, he leverages everything that he's done in yeah. previous films, but without making direct reference to it. Right. Um, but he's standing and, on know. his own shoulders, which is so fucking smart. You know, I mean, that's, that is the logical way to do that. Mm. But, Oh God, we were we're like off topic here. I was going to talk about Wake and Fright, and I just wanted to give a big fuck you to everyone who told me to watch that movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, it's not. I I can definitely see why it's considered the movie to to recommend to people if they're like, I'm watching Australian films. But it is just it takes that that idea of of the outback, not the not the the wilderness part, but like outback towns. Of being this purgatory of horrible, stupid men doing literally nothing all day except shooting kangaroos in cold blood. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then does absolutely fuck all with it. Like, there's no point, no moral, there's no redemption whatsoever. There's not even a plot. It's just, it's Lemony Snicket, horrible things keep happening for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Um, and I don't know why anybody told me to watch it. it well, does... I think it's kind of like the the critically acclaimed 70s Australian movie. I know? don't know why. 
<laughs> well, you, you could say that about a lot of critically acclaimed films from past years, I think, when you watch them and go, maybe this was kind of breaking some ground at the time, but now that I'm watching it, mm. I guess so. I mean, it's the se- early 70s film is like all that new wave stuff. A lot of it is just nihilistic in a way that doesn't say anything. Like, it's it's completely unproductive. It's like, everything sucks, the end, no moral. Um, uh, an Australian Sam Peckinpah movie. I, I think. I, like, I, I respect that as a as a a motto, a personal motto. I do not respect it as a filmmaking style because it's like, why did you make this? I already know the world sucks ass. I don't well, know. That's how I that's how I feel about all like in, indie mumblecore films. Yes. Yes. I get to the end of them and I go, "Why? <laughs> Why? Just do a plot. <laughs> have an arc, have a character develop, have something change at the end of the film." I think personally, I I, I really think it's sort of a uniquely privileged position for a filmmaker to oh. be in. It's like I'm going to make 90 minutes and actually Wake and Fright is longer. It's like almost 2 hours of how everything is really terrible and shitty all the time and people are awful uh, and rape and murder exist and so do animal Mm. cruelty. And this is a huge revelation to me because, I don't know, I'm a white man. Like, everyone else knows that. If if you're making a movie that way, in a way that implies to me that you think that this is information that you need to convey to your audience, Mm. fuck you. Like, everyone else knows that. We yeah, are, yeah. we're way ahead of you, dude. Um, yeah, there's nothing like watching a film where you get the sense that the filmmaker was like, oh, what a revelation this is going to be to people. And you watch it and you're like, really? Yeah. No, you just so found people out need to know the existed. truth. Cool. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. It is, it is that. Uh, yeah. Which is very different to say, like, you know, somebody watching a film like, guess who's coming to dinner or in the heat of the night or something in the 60s and going, oh. You know, I imagine there's a lot more to learn at those points. But so we are we are running out of time here. So we're just going to do a couple of questions from the mailbag before we wrap it up. So we got a couple of questions here. Uh, Sweet, sweet angel Patreon and friend of the show, Chip Malfunction asks. Hi, Chip. "Um, Hey, g'day, Chip. Asks, could you recommend some beginner reading material for glyphs, runes, sigils, and the likes for those among us looking to better understand the visual language in your work? Um, yes and no. Uh, no, because I'm not doing sigils the way that they are supposed to be done. Um, so the 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 chaos magic, and I'm doing air quotes here, the chaos magic practice of sigil making doesn't have a lot to do with what I'm actually doing, and that is intentional. Uh, not because I don't think it's a valid practice. It's totally valid. Um, it's just not something that I've ever, be, ever been interested in personally. And part of the reason is because it is non-representative art. And I have my own quibbles with abstract art in general. But um, I think that when we sort of lost representational art in the 50s as a, as a, as a culture... Um, we lost touch with a lot of the meaning behind representational artwork in the first place. I mean, it, it is, there is a reason why religious iconography and ritual objects and cave paintings look like the things that they are. It's because that is a very, very powerful force of, of the human brain is that, we have insane visual acuity and and critical thinking skills. Um, and so Problem Glyphs is sort of a redress of what I saw as further and further abstractions of uh, ritual symbolism from the actual thing that it is. And that, I mean, that's what I like about cave paintings is you go into Let's Go and you look up and you're like, that is a horse, that is a bear, that is a buffalo, that is a lion. And these were painted an unfathomable amount of time ago by people who did not speak my language, um, who had nothing to do with the way that I live my life from day to day. And they still made a cartoon of a bear 
that I can totally recognize. It conveys a ton of information about this animal and their relationship to it. And it's just a good fucking drawing, you know? And that that is sort of the main disagreement between artists and illustrators, and I'm more of an illustrator, is that that's it's for the people, you know? Just draw the fucking thing. Show people mm. what it is you're, you're, you're talking about. You don't need to wreath things in obscurity in order for them to take on a sort of false importance. Just let people look at a thing and know what it is. Um, so in terms of like glyphs and sigils and stuff, I, I, there really isn't any reading that I can recommend for that. Uh, my personal recommendations for just like the subject matter in general, I think that um, Arthur Evans' Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture is a must read. Uh, it's from the 70s, and it is basically a subjective um, history accounting of the links between persecution of witchcraft and the persecution of queers and women. Um, and I just, I really love this book. I think that it's such a good basis for looking into the rest of this stuff because it provides a point of view that states at the beginning of the book that it is subjective, acknowledges that all history is subjective as opposed to this is the one truth, um, and gives you a lot of information to go kind of on your own, your own jumping off points about it. It's also a very small book. It's easy to get through. The other two I wanted to bring up was, uh, Dolaire's book of Greek mythology, which is actually an illustrated book for children. Um, it's the book that I grew up with uh, as a kid. I read it to tatters. The artwork is phenomenal. It's a very good overview of Greek mythology in general. And then the third thing I wanted to recommend was the Cartoon History of the Universe by Larry Gonick. Um, Gonick. Gonick. Cartoon History of the Universe. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, it's not particularly expensive. It is a, it's a big paperback of, it, it is what it says in the box. It is a literal cartoon history of the entire universe, starting at the Big Bang and going up into modern times. There are three volumes. They're all very large. Um, and it's the best history book I've ever, ever, ever read. It should be required reading in all elementary schools, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and the artwork is incredible, and it's... Its survey of information is incredible, and the characterizations of all of the historical figures that it includes is just, it's just absolutely wonderful. I actually posted some of it on my Twitter recently when uh, we were talking about Sparta, because it has a very good section on the Greeks, um, and particularly the Spartans. But it's just wonderful, and it's it's like, you know, I think a lot of us are sitting around going, ah, I gotta read more history books so I can understand conditions. And... <laughs> And you're like, oh, I could read this thing, but it's huge. Um, but the cartoon history of the universe is it, it's it's incredibly readable, and this guy does such a good job of using contemporary symbolism and contemporary art and redrawing it into the actual story that he's telling about history. Um, that I think it really informed a lot of my understanding of of ritual symbolism and, and historical symbolism. Um, you know, and the other thing with, with problem glyphs is that if, if something about it, if you're not, if you feel like you're not really understanding what a glyph is about, which is completely understandable, they are weird and dense, like yours truly. Um, you, particularly you can Google stuff. Like I recently, the, the clue is a lot of times in the title. Like, if the title is a weird word or a term you haven't heard before or a pun or something, you can just sh put that into Google, and a lot of times it'll it'll explain everything or or at least get you started. Um, but you know one of the one of the purposes of problem glyphs is that it's it is supposed to be a reflective surface so that whoever is using it, whoever is looking at it, is going to see and find what they need there as opposed to being told what something is and i've gotten a lot of feedback sort of along those lines of people who are like i love this glyph here's what it means to me 
And internally, I'm going, wow, that is completely wrong. That is mm. the opposite of what I, of what I drew. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't fucking matter because that is as useful to them, if not more so, than it would have been if I had insisted upon, you know, yeah. pro projecting my intent. Um, yes, if you'd said, you, you've got it wrong. Stop looking at it now. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not, that's not my place. That's just, it's out of my hands now. It's not, mm. you know, it's not my drawing anymore. Do what you do what you need to do with it. Um, so God, I get those are like the big three. I, you know, there are a lot of books, good books, that you can get shit out of. Um, my main resource is Wikipedia, and then I I read the overview of whatever subject I'm trying to figure out a thing about, and then I follow more and more specific and granular iterations of whatever that topic is until I find. Whatever it the is old, I'm looking for, the old Wikipedia wormhole. Yeah, no, it's that's that is the big that's oh. the big process, which I love. Oh yeah, no, it's fall, it, falling into Wikipedia and coming out a little while later. People have asked me this question a lot, and it sucks that there's not a short answer. But the shortest answer you're going to get is read literally everything you can get your hands on, apply critical thinking to it, figure out what's bullshit, and then just let it rot. You know, I mean, Warren Ellis refers to this as the compost heat method. For me, it's more of a dumpster fire. You just, <laughs> you put a bunch of shit in your brain and then you leave it alone. And your brain will continue to buffer that information um, until it achieves some sort of a synthesis later when you need it. So a lot of it's very, it's very passive. And also, don't worry too much about it. There's, there's no right or wrong answer about problem glyphs. It's, you know, it's whatever you need. All right, well... I think we are going to now take some questions over to the uh, patron bonus episode. Um, we will put a bunch of information about problem glyphs and your book and everything um, on this episode. So if people want to look into that, they can get into it. They can either uh, pre-order the book or uh, if you just want to sit and gradually make your way through the 300 problem glyphs and see what you make of them, then you can go ahead and do that. So yes, we're going to go and do some some patron-only Q&A over on the Patreon page. So if you would like to get into that, I'm sure you can find the information about how to subscribe on all of our pages. And I will put it on the description for this one with all of our other info. So thank you very much for joining us, Eliza. Oh, thanks for having me on. I had a great time. Bye. Bye.